Good morning, and congratulations for all of you who are here. I might mention to you that in your notes on the on the final page, there is a parallel uh, gospel account uh, that may prove helpful to you as we uh, work our way along in the text. Oh, I have many titles for this sermon. Uh, He's Alive is my uh, chosen title, and I'm going to stay with that. Another title would be uh, All's Well That Ends Well, Does Mark End Well? And that really is a, a fairly significant question. The other title might be The Road Less Traveled. And you'll <laughs> see where that takes us a little bit as time goes on. By the way, I might say that for some of my sermons, people would simply say, All's Well That Ends. And uh, that I would even agree with. Uh, there have been times where that was probably the better way um, to go. But it is important that we get this text right because it's the conclusion to the Gospel of Mark. And if we don't get it right, then we obviously miss, as it were, where he has been taking us. This is a very, very important portion of Mark's Gospel. It is a concluding message in terms of the Gospel of Mark, and strangely enough, it's a concluding message in terms of an era for me in preaching, but it is a text that I find exciting, and I love to work my way through it. So let's begin, if we can, with the empty tomb, Mark 16, verses 1 through 8. The passage that, that is not contested and, uh, and the uh, text that, um, that uh, should bring us a great deal of insight, even if it's not a great conclusion, in my opinion. So you have here the, uh, the women who have come early in the morning. Remember, the women have been there at the cross. The women were there when Jesus' body was buried. But it was uh, the Sabbath was almost upon them, and so they went home and they came back as early as they could early on that uh, morning, and they are ready with their spices uh, to do a better job than those two men at at uh, uh, giving our Lord's body a treatment for burial. I love it in in Mark's gospel because. He puts before us what is foremost in their minds. I don't know exactly at what point they came to ask themselves, how are we getting into that tomb? Now, they must have watched as the stone was rolled in front of that tomb. Would you not think? And and here they are with all of these things, and they're saying to themselves, how are we going to get now? I don't know if they knew about the the Roman soldiers. I don't know if they knew that that tomb was sealed. But but that was the great obstacle, was it not for them? That was a huge obstacle and it and it's it's big in their minds and it's Mark's account that says to us it is a very large stone. 
Just in case anybody has any questions, this is not the kind of stone that gets removed easily. Now, I don't usually sermonize on points like this, but I'm going to, this is my last shot. So, hey, I do anything I want. I think that God puts stones in all of our lives and he puts large ones there. I mean, small stones really don't evidence the greatness of his power, right? Little stone, no problem. Big stone, big problem. And, and God puts a large stone there because he's going to remove it in a way that he gets the glory and he gets the, the praise out of all of that. We all have had large stones in our life and we will, I believe, in the future as well. So, here they are fretting about that. And the thing I love, in Mark's gospel, they get there and the stone's gone. Well, it's moved, right? It's out of the way. So here they've been fretting and fussing. And I think about that again in terms of our lives. In these large stones, we're fretting and fussing. How will we deal with this or that? And lo and behold, we get there and it isn't even a problem. It's gone. Now, Matthew's account gives us some additional insight. And frankly, Matthew makes me chuckle. Think about this. You've got a couple of problems with moving the stone. One is the size of the stone. Gotcha. The other is Pilate has put Rome's signet stamp on a seal in that stone. So whoever moves that stone is guilty of violating Roman law. Would that not be correct? You'd be in big trouble for saying, fooey on the seal, I'm moving the stone anyway. So who moved it? Not the angel, friend. Not the angel, I don't think. The angel's part of the rolling away. But Matthew tells us there is a huge earthquake. So in a sense, if uh, Pilate in Rome wants to argue about who's breaking his seal, talk to him! Don't talk to me! I didn't break the seal. The earthquake broke the seal. Now, as I understand it, the angel rolled the stone, but God broke the seal. And so you have this these extra added details. And here's the thing that makes me chuckle to myself. And he sat on it. Now, I have the feeling that this was a smart aleck teenage angel. You know, the kind that doesn't just move the stone, he parks on it and like, ta-da, and another angel's taking pictures of him, you know, saying, all right. Isn't, isn't it kind of like saying, in your face? Okay, that's the way I read it. You can read it any dull way you like. <clears throat> the stone is gone. Now, think about what Matthew tells us about the guards. I love this. I went back to Matthew chapter 27 and I read something I had not really ever noticed before. When the Lord Jesus was buried and his body was placed in the tomb, you remember that the religious leaders went to Pilate and they said, it's, it's very likely that Jesus' disciples are going to steal his body because Jesus said he would rise on the third day 
And so we would like you to secure the tomb for how long? Three days. Now get this. It is the third day, right? God could have waited for that shift to go home. Right? Could have done it. But he moves the stone while they're still on duty. Don't you love that? How do these, how do these guys explain what they saw? Earthquake, angel, stone moved, empty tomb. Uh, and they go back to the pre, the high priest and the, and the, the religious leaders and say, um, we, we've got something we need to tell you. And, and, and they spell this thing out. They are on duty. And, and by the way, the, the, the way I read the text, it says, oh, Elvis Presley should have been there. He's all shook up. Mm-hmm. It, that's what it says. In my text, it says they were shaken up by the earthquake. And then they were petrified like stone. Isn't that funny? Stone moves. These guys now are sitting there like stone. Finally, I don't know how they got unpetrified, but they had to go off and they had to tell the story. Here's the other funny thing about this. What is the cover-up plot? How do you explain an empty tomb and no body? They say his disciples stole the body. Now, go back to Matthew 27. What was it they most feared? They most feared that the disciples would steal the body and say he was raised from the dead. Now the thing they feared most is their excuse. Oh man, wouldn't it have been fun to be Pilate and say, let me see, let me see if I got this right. Well, anyway, there they are, the guards. I love the way God works to manifest his power. Then we come to the angels in uh, verses 5 through 7. Obviously, they're elsewhere as well. Matthew and Mark focus on one angel. Uh, the one, as I see, who is, who is uh, uh, sitting on the stone. And, the, uh, and Mark focuses on the one who's sitting inside the tomb. Now, Luke tells us there are two angels, right? That's no problem for me because you got one sitting on the stone... And the other inside the tomb, when the women get in there, uh, Luke tells, uh, tells us about both. Mark and Matthew simply focus on one. Mark talks pretty, pretty uh, plain Jane language about the angel dressed in white, you know, no big, no big thing. But Matthew gives us a little more dramatic appearance. He says that the angel's appearance is like lightning. You know, I read in a couple of commentaries talking about, you know, was this really an angel or not? Give me a break. Lightning face. I'd say it's an angel. And and uh, his clothes are as white as snow. Doesn't that have a biblical ring to it? Man, this is heaven come down. All right. Two men in Luke, dazzling attire. Now, here's what the angels say in Mark's account. Don't be alarmed. <laughs> and I see that as, you know, here are these guards who are hustling off. Obviously, they're alarmed. Women are wondering, what in the world's going on here? 
and and uh, they see the the empty tomb. Don't be afraid. Notice that the, the the angel does not say, "What are you doing here?" I have to confess a, a deep psychological fear that I have. Every once in a while, have you ever gone into a restroom and and it wasn't furnished exactly the way you thought that a, a you know, women, you won't get this. But, but, but uh, it, for men, you go in and, and it isn't furnished the way men's restrooms are. Oh, the panic strikes. I go back, pull open the door, look at the sign. Men, yes! Whew! What a relief. I, I get the feeling that these women get into the tomb and they look around and they say, are we at the right address? Check the GPS again. Uh, maybe we got it wrong. It's empty. The stone's gone. Maybe this isn't the place. The angel doesn't say, who are you looking for? He says, this is the place. I know you're looking for Jesus. He isn't here. He's been raised. And look, by the way, this is where they laid him. And then they say, he says, go... Tell his disciples and even Peter that Jesus is going to Galilee. You'll see him there. And there's that last expression, just as he told you. Matthew, Mark, Luke. All three Gospels have the equivalent of that statement. Every one of them makes a point of saying, Jesus told you this before. This is the fulfillment. Now, when you come to John and you look at that last uh, piece of text in verses 8 and 9, John, the other disciple, he reached the tomb first, but he came in last. He looked and he saw and he believed, parenthesis, verse 9, for they had not yet understood the scriptures that Jesus must rise from the dead. So the reality is, John has come to the conclusion Jesus is alive based upon the compelling evidence without any predisposition to believe Jesus said that would happen. Do you see the force of that? It's one thing to say, oh yeah, that's right. I mean, I think the women got it better than the men. And and the angel saying, don't you remember when Jesus said, oh yeah, 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 we do. Not the men. Not the men. Mm-mm. They're not asking for directions. And and so John comes to the conclusion. Not Peter, interestingly enough. But John comes to the conclusion. Wow. He's raised from the dead. But he doesn't know that he was supposed to. So the text tells us. All right. Here are things that we need to note about... Verses 1 through 8. There is no personal appearance of Jesus this far in Mark. No personal appearance of Jesus. Would you agree with me? Angel, yes. Jesus, no. Now, when you look at John 20, Jesus appears to Mary Magdalene. You know, stop clinging to me and so on. Uh, if, if you stole the body thinking Jesus is the gardener, then tell me where you've laid him. John 20. Matthew 28, Jesus appears to the women on the way back from the tomb. 
In uh, John 20, verses 19 through 31, Jesus later appears to the disciples as they have gathered. You remember, in the first instance, Thomas isn't there. In the second instance, he is. And then in Luke 24, Jesus appears to the two men on the road to Emmaus. But no appearance thus far in Mark, which I would say is a kind of a poor place to end it if Jesus hasn't yet appeared, in my opinion. The reluctance to believe everybody, everybody who eventually will believe does so reluctantly. Nobody is presupposed is predisposed to believe in that. They are forced by the evidence. We surely see that in our text because here you have the women leaving, fleeing from the tomb, saying nothing to anyone out of fear. They haven't got it yet, as I read the text. No recollection of Jesus' words saying, in Jerusalem he would suffer, die, and rise from the dead. So, all of this happens because of the compelling evidence that is before them. They come to believe because the evidence drives them to that conclusion. Mark chapter 16 and verse 8 leaves us with the women frightened, fearful, fleeing from the tomb and not saying anything to anyone. Now, my friend, if you can find faith in that, good for you. I personally see that as not yet finished. I'm not willing to say at this point, it is finished. (laughs) The scholars may, I'm not. I don't think it is finished yet. Too much is left undone and unsaid. To me, it's sort of like reading that text in Mark chapter 4. Remember, that's the story of the, of the, of the storm and the disciples. And it's like reading the disciples saying, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? End of story. Hey, I kind of like the rest. Don't you? Jesus rebukes the winds. Yes! Yes! Now I can be amazed. Not at verse 38, in my opinion. All right, that brings us to our problem. As soon as I get my pages separated here, I'm going to tell you about that. What are we to do with Mark 16, 9 through 20? Here's the problem. Most evangelical scholars, the vast majority, believe that uh, verses 9 through 20 are not a part of the original, authentic text. By the way... In my version of the New American Standard, not the NASB 95, it's not there. But not only do I find in my version of Mark 16, verses 9 through 20 in brackets. Some of you have Bibles like that in brackets. But did you notice underneath that, it says edition 1. How many people have the old version? 1973, classic version. Ah, yes. Do you notice that? Edition, it's got a footnote there. There's another ending to the Gospel of Mark. And I think I could safely say it's not the only one. There are a number of attempts to end Mark 
right. Interesting to me. Okay, they would say the oldest manuscripts, and the assumption is that oldest is best. That has people who challenge that. A few old manuscripts don't have verses 9 through 20. Many later manuscripts do have it. Internal and external evidence, and you could go down the trail with all this, vocabulary studies and grammar and blah, blah, blah. And, and, and basically they're saying, yeah, it just doesn't look like Mark. That would be their conclusion. Maybe they're right. But I would say this. The evidence does look strong. I'm not willing to say it's airtight. I'm not willing to say it's airtight. Maybe right, but I'm not sure it's a lead pipe cinch. So what are our options? Well, here's where you go. One, Mark intended the book to end at verse 8. <laughs> if he did, I'd say to him, shame on you. But some would say that. And and uh, I, I have to, say, well, let me just say, John MacArthur, listen to his sermon. Uh, that's where he goes. He'll stop it here. And he'll land on the word amazing. And he'll go all the way back through the book of Mark. And he'll talk about all the amazing things. And what he wants us to conclude is that this is truly amazing. It is. But all of that looks back. It doesn't look forward. The other Gospels look forward. And then they can say amazing when they focus on what happens afterwards. Another choice. Mark did not intend to end at verse 8. R.T. France is there, uh, and, and I, 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 frankly, I liked his approach as far as it went. Mark didn't intend to stop there. Some would say he died. Some would say somehow he, he, he didn't, he wasn't able to finish the book. Some would say, uh, that page was lost. Somebody took it away. Whatever. There are various reasons that they would posit for saying Mark did intend to finish the book, but for whatever reason, we don't have that conclusion, whatever it might be. Then there's the uh, third option, small minority here. And that is, verses 9 through 20 are actually the text, and they are the conclusion. And uh, I, I'm going to take um, a slightly different variation on that. You'll see my fourth point there. Verses 9 through 20 serve as a proper conclusion to the book, whether they are Mark's words or not. Get that. Verses 9 through 20 are a proper conclusion to the book, whether they are Mark's words or not. That means the grammar doesn't need to fit. Vocabulary doesn't need to fit. But it's uh, a valid conclusion. Here's the problem with ending at verse 8, whether on purpose or some other reason. And get this. I, I don't know of anybody who's, who's stated this in print. Sure, probably somebody has. One way or the other, in the, in the sovereign will of God... Verses 9 through 20 have been viewed by much or most of evangelical Christianity as the legitimate conclusion to the Gospel of Mark for a thousand years. Now, okay, you say, wait a minute, wait, 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 1611. 
<laughs> You're doing your math. Good for you. Okay. Maybe that's 300 years or so. 400 years. No, 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 no. These are medieval manuscripts on which the King James Version is based. That takes us back to eight, nine hundred, folks. So since eight or nine hundred, the majority of manuscripts have somehow, without question, left this as the conclusion. So whatever the reason is, God has allowed men to believe this was the conclusion to Mark for a thousand years. I'm not saying that proves anything. I'm just simply saying that's a fact, is it not? And if God is sovereign in the preservation of his word, then I would say a thousand year issue for believers for a thousand years, that ought to count for something. At least it does for me. It is a strain to preach Mark and conclude at verse 8 with any really powerful message, in my opinion. It is a strain to conclude the Gospel of Mark at verse 8. There are too many unsettled things. And you can focus, if you want, on that word amazing. Yes, you can. But the reality is these women were fearful. They fled and they were silent. I do not see that as a triumphant, amazing conclusion to a great gospel. That's my personal opinion, and it is by far a minority opinion. It's inconsistent with the way the other gospels end. It's inconsistent. No other gospel ends that way. I don't think Mark is Alfred Hitchcock. I, I, I don't think he's trying to leave us saying, what, what, what in the world is the guy doing here? I don't think so, personally. So I say it's like ending a football game in the third quarter when your team is behind. <laughs> just, you know, somehow it just doesn't leave me with that feeling like it's done. Or, to put it in different words, you know, I am not a, I am not a musician. I am not a musician, really. Uh, in, I, I've, I played a trumpet when I was a kid, but I'm not really a musician. I've come to terms with that. <laughs> That's where I am. But I gotta tell you, I have a sense, I have a sense when I sing, I have a sense of where the next note ought to be, and sometimes some modern music does not get there. You ever had that feel? You know, it's like, seek and ye shall find music, and I'm saying, wait, 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 this note, maybe this note, but not that one! And, and one of the great songs that I love to hear, uh, a, a group, uh, sing, they end on the wrong note. And every time I listen, I cringe. Like, come on, you got one more note to go. Get it. Get it right. That's the way I read Mark. If it ends at verse 8, I'm saying, wrong note. By the way, one of my great friends in this church has a statement that has stuck with me for years. Too much man, too little God. That's the way I feel at verse 8. Too much man. It doesn't end with Jesus. It ends with frightened women fleeing from the empty tomb and saying nothing to anybody. That's not enough about a glorious, risen Savior. 
So, here are my uh, assumptions. Our sovereign God must have planned and prepared for these verses to be viewed as the conclusion of Mark for a thousand years. God must have purposed that way. That's the way it happened. Either that or God somehow lost control of things, and I doubt we would want to go there. The disputed conclusions to the Gospel of Mark, and I've said there are more. there's more than one, okay? Various conclusions are all prompted by the same motivation, in my opinion. And that is, you can't end here like that. So no matter what the conclusion is, somebody said, i got to fix this. It's got to end differently than it does. At verse 8. Now, here's another one. If the concern is that Mark did not write verses 9 through 20, I'm not saying he did or he didn't at this moment. If it is true that someone other than Mark wrote those verses, so what? Would you go in your minds back to Deuteronomy chapter 34? Deuteronomy chapter 34, by the way, would we all agree? Moses, Moses wrote Deuteronomy. That's not always generally accepted in some theological circles. Moses wrote it. But Moses died, folks. And we read, as it were, the post-mortem of chapter 34. Does Do people tear uh, chapter 34 out of Deuteronomy and say, it is in Moses? No. Hey, under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, somebody finished the book for Moses. In a way that is absolutely consistent, nobody in evangelical circles questions the authority of their inspiration of those words. So if Mark didn't write the last verses, so what? It doesn't, it doesn't disqualify them, in my opinion. Next point. It's inconceivable that Mark expected us to stop at verse 8. Uh, at verse eight. Now, I, I would say this. Mark has to assume, even if he stopped at verse 8, he has to assume that his readers are going to say, Wait, 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 it's not the end. Tell me what, tell me what the end is. He must assume that we're going to go to the other Gospels and read the end. Would you not agree? He would certainly expect us to go to the book of Acts and say, here's how this story continues. Not just that it stops with fearful women fleeing silently. It's got to end differently the way the Bible does it in other places. He would expect us to go there. Oh, here's one that I don't have in my notes. I think the reason why some people get a little itchy about this, these final verses is because some wackos in the Thule's are handling snakes. And, and somehow that looks so crazy, we don't want to have anything to do with it. Hey, all right, so what happened to Paul in Acts chapter 28? Picks up a piece of firewood, wham! Venomous two-step viper gets him. They're standing there waiting for him to drop. And he doesn't. But look with me. If you think there's a problem with these verses because of what they say, look with me back in Luke 
at what Jesus said to his, to the 70 when he sent them out. Verse 17, Luke 10. And the 70 returned with joy saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I was watching Satan fall from heaven like lightning. Behold, I have given you authority to tread upon serpents and scorpions. Hmm. Sounds familiar. And over the power of the enemy and nothing. I'm going to put a little bracket here. Including poison. Could harm you. Isn't Jesus saying at the end of Mark. I'm sending you forth with my power and under my protection. And nothing will harm you apart from my sovereign decree that it does. That's what Luke 10 is saying. You'll have power over the enemy. Nothing will harm you. So here's where I go. Whether or not verses 9 through 20 are written by Mark, they express precisely what the other Gospels tell us. There is nothing new or novel in anything that is said. The other Gospels and Acts confirm everything that is said in these verses. And I believe that we would be expected to go there to conclude this right. Interesting, when I read R.T. France, here's what he said. R.T. France says, I believe that Mark intended that there was a conclusion beyond verse 8. He doesn't know whether, you know, it got lost or whatever happened in that process. But then he goes on to say this. Whatever it was, I would expect these elements to be present in the conclusion Mark would have or would have had. (laughs) This is where I really enjoy myself. I said to myself, I know, I said to R.T. France, that's exactly what Mark 16, 9 through 20 says. Isn't that just a, you know, isn't that a gut buster? Hmm? I would expect, you know, as a scholar, I would expect these things to be dealt with in a conclusion. And there they are. So whether Mark wrote them or whoever, these are the things that one would expect that someone would include in their conclusion. So what is it? What do we find in those last verses That's a message to us. One, Jesus is alive and well. Would you agree with me? Jesus is alive and well. Second. Well, actually, part of my first point. And we know that because Jesus appeared to a number of people on a number of different occasions. We get that from Matthew, Luke, John, Acts... And, 1 Corinthians 15, 500 people, Paul says, many of whom are still alive. That's what we're told in Mark. That's what we're told everywhere. Jesus is alive and he appeared to many. Good for Mark. Our risen Lord left his disciples with a mission to fulfill. 
Jesus is alive, but he has ascended to the Father. And when he was ascending to the Father, he gave them and his church the Great Commission. Preach the gospel and make disciples. Well, so there it is in Mark chapter 16. As it is in Matthew 28, Luke 24, Acts 1. Make disciples. Thirdly, Jesus promised to empower the preaching of his gospel and protect those who did so. Right? We see that again in the gospels, the other gospels, and in the book of Acts, and in the epistles. That is precisely what the conclusion in verses 9 through 20 tells us. And we see that Jesus bore witness to the ongoing proclamation of the gospel and that it was effective in converting sinners and building the church. So I leave you with two questions. One, how are we living? Are we living our lives as though Mark ended at verse 8? <laughs> you know, I was thinking, these women, if you stop at verse 8, and you're saying, people are fearful, fearful of what other people would say or think, and quiet, silent. Isn't that the way many Christians, including me, isn't that the way many Christians live their lives? They live their lives as though Mark ended at verse 8. Or maybe more importantly, that the gospel ended at Mark 16 and verse 8. The silence, my friend, is not a compliment to us or to our risen Lord. Put differently, are we those who serve the living Christ in faith and obedience and boldness, as we read in the book of Acts, or we serve him in fear? It all comes down to that. So I say to you, I don't know all the technical answers to what takes place. I simply know this. Everything in those concluding verses is true. And it is true according to the word of God. Not just in this text, but in Matthew, Luke, John, and Acts. And frankly, that's enough for me. That's enough for me. Father, we thank you for this great book. How grateful we are that it didn't end with the events of verse 8. It ended with your appearances to your disciples in such a powerful and dramatic way that it changed their lives. It made fearful men hiding in locked rooms bold proclaimers of the gospel. Father, we acknowledge that not only did the Lord Jesus rise, but he left us with a work to do and he promised to be with us as we do that. May we be bold in the proclamation of this great news. And if there is anyone here in the hearing of my voice who has never trusted in Jesus as the Son of God, as the promised Messiah, 
as the one and only sacrifice by which sins are forgiven forever. May they trust in him. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.